Hello and welcome to the Leaders Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another cloudy day here in the capital city as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I am Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Janet Jack. Janet is the CEO of the International Association of Bookkeepers, an off-call regulated professional and examination body for the bookkeeping profession. Janet, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us this afternoon. Thank you. It's great to be here. Likewise, Janet, it's an absolute pleasure having you with us. Now, the purpose of this discussion is to really understand your take on leadership as a whole. And I think it's fair to say that leadership is something that's really being put to the test at the moment, isn't it, with the emergence of COVID-19, no less, and different business leaders having to really feel their way through this um, uncharted territory. Um, We'll get on to that later, of course. But first and foremost, if we just look at that word leader in isolation, just for a moment, what does that word actually mean to you and how does it resonate? Leader, it's all about knowing your team and also knowing your market. So it's looking at the big picture at all times, no matter what the changing climate is. So it's a case of being, where are we going and how are we going to get there? And how can we improve our offering to our members, our clients, whatever whatever your business is, you've always got to be thinking those steps ahead and having that leadership skill to know your team, to bring them forward and bring them with you uh, on that journey to um, keep your business or your organisation going. Some incredibly important points that you mentioned there, Jan, and of course, the need first and foremost to take people with you on that journey and um, get them to buy into that vision. That's incredibly important. But also you say it's a constant process of adaptability as well. And that's absolutely integral, especially when we think about the here and now with COVID-19 and the fact that businesses are really having their hand forced to adapt their offering to make sure they can continue to operate and continue to survive into the uh, the future. Tell me, um, for yourselves at the um, International Association of Bookkeepers, how has it been adapting to meet this current pandemic? Because I can imagine that has posed some challenges for yourselves as well. Um, yes, it did. It certainly put um, our disaster recovery um, um, to the test about not being able to work in the office. Um, so with, with us working internationally, obviously we um, we deal with a lot of people in Malaysia and China. And um, being as that was the, the, the start of the area of where it came from, we were kind of a bit ahead of the game, so I made sure we'd got extra laptops for people to be able to work at home and, and just changed the way we, we worked. And I think the most important thing was to make sure we kept contact with everybody. So we, I arranged regular team meetings weekly. Each individual department have their own team meeting as well weekly to make sure that nobody feels isolated. Also, you have problems that... Um, when you're not normally in an office where you're all together, some people who may not have family close by, you don't want them to have, um, you know, it, have any mental health issues. It's important to bring your team together. So acting quickly was really important and um, to keeping in touch. And then how we dealt with our members, we've found that engaged um, on the membership side. We've engaged with our members this coffee morning went through all the legislation changes with furloughing workers, how to get their grants. So we had lots of questions and answers going on that, lots of engagement. 
And I think that's made us realise on where what else we can do going forward and what we were missing out on in the past uh, by not doing doing things like this. Um, so I, I suppose it's forced your hand to go down that digital digital route quicker, um, where you may be a little bit frightened to to take that all on board, because um, you know um, our profession is quite an old old fashioned profession, but it's also a very important one, which is something you can't do without during the course of uh, your business. So it has led us to uh, look at things in a different light and to be able to act quite quickly. It's taken an awful amount of proactivity, hasn't it, to have plans in place, um, but also the ability Absolutely. to be flexible and react as well, because it's all well and good, of course, having plans in place for certain eventualities. But with changing guidelines and changing circumstances, as we're seeing at the moment, it's important to be able to sort of be flexible and adapt around those as well, isn't it? And business, to be fair, has responded incredibly well to uh, the crisis so far, at least in uh, my personal view. And that also comes down to people's teams as well. The fact that they have really gone above and beyond on and apply themselves during this period to keep things ticking over and that goes for whether they've been furloughed and they've been involved in other initiatives maybe taking the time to do extra training maybe got involved in community initiatives and um, people who've had to continue to work on site and operate under new safety procedures but also those who've had to adapt to remote working as well um has everybody at the iab taken to this well do you think have you been inspired by what you've seen by those around you I have, yes. I, I, the team has been absolutely brilliant um, and adapted really quickly um, and found ways around to, to do things um, di- differently um, in a very short space of time. Um, I think that our awarding side, um, that was slightly more difficult with, um, you know, the way colleges act because every college is slightly different, every centre is slightly different. But it just took a few weeks to, to, to change that process we we are just allowing people to go back in um, to the office but only one at a time to print the, um, the certificates for you know for people who pass their qualifications so that they're not waiting um, but we've put measures in place only one person goes in the office everything is sanitized afterwards so you know keeping everybody safe but also keeping that engagement going with the people we work with. And, and the students, of course, um, you know, putting that effort in and then not having to wait a long time is, is important. It is incredibly important. I think that's um, exactly right. And we've talked about how the reaction of those around you has been one that's inspired you, Janet. But if we just sort of backtrack from the current pandemic just for a moment, what other people or experiences would you say have been big inspirations on you as you've developed through your career? Oh, um, I think it's I think mainly, I think it's just different people you meet from different walks of life. I've had a very varied career and I've always been in um, in this industry. Um, and I've travelled extensively um, during my career. And I think it's, it's learning to adapt um, to different ways, different cultures, meeting different people. And you learn something from everybody you meet, I think. Um, and taking that on board and taking the time to listen to people as well. You know, um, just because I'm a CEO doesn't mean I know everything. Um, and, and I think that's what you've got to be careful of as a leader, 
you, you need to be able to listen to other people too and, and, and look at other people's points of view before you make that final decision. You um, do, yes, that's exactly right. Um, because even as leaders, we're not infallible, are we? And it's easy to forget no, that not. sometimes. It really is easy to forget that. And also, we're not lone wolves either. We can look to other people no. for advice and guidance. And a very notable gentleman by the name of Nelson Mandela, in fact, once said exactly this, surround yourself with people who are better than you. And when it comes to formulating a team, Absolutely. especially in business, that's a fantastic and very sound bit of advice, isn't it, as well? It is very, very sound advice. You know, there's, everyone has a strength uh, and, you know, work with the people where, where you've got your weaknesses, because we all do, um, so that you build a really good team. Yeah. And, and that's it, that I think that's really important, is to be able to build a good team and have good working relationships and be able to listen to others. And also, you know, don't be afraid to admit if you get something wrong. You know, you learn from doing something wrong just as much as you learn from getting things right. Do you think we can really actually hope to be good leaders without that experience of making mistakes and maybe embracing them as a learning curve? I think that's incredibly important, isn't it? And yeah, what we need to certainly be encouraging people to do, especially venturing into the business world for the first time, is not to be too risk averse. Take measured risks, but don't be afraid to try things. And when you do have setbacks, learn from them because failure isn't something to ultimately fear, is it? No, it isn't. Um, it, it really isn't. I mean, some of the American um, ways are it's like if you haven't um, sort of um, failed a few times, you're not really a business person. You know, it's admitting um, that, okay, you didn't quite get it right this time. You know, parts of it was right, but let's just change that so we could get better. And and I think that's the way you have, you have, you have to look at it. It's not. It's not um, a failure as such because you 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 learn from that. So you, it's not been a waste. Mm, exactly right. It's not been a waste. Um, and making sure that, of course, you take something away from it and don't make that same mistake um, again is going yeah. to be paramount. And we're going through one of the biggest learning curves for businesses probably in history at this point in time. And those that do make it through, there are going to be lessons learned from this by way of automation, innovation. And there'll be valuable experience of crisis management as well for those that have got through it. And it will ultimately help develop the character of employees as well, going out of their comfort zones just to keep things going. Yeah. Yes, I think it will. Um, very much so. I think people are, are learning to adapt to work for different ways. And um, they should be praised for, for, for doing that. You know, it's, it's come as a shock to us all on, you know, how we've all had to adapt. And unfortunately, there is going to be businesses that won't survive this. But there'll also be new businesses that will emerge from it. They will, exactly. Yeah, you've got to embrace the new as well and then try and help the people who have lost out to be able to come into a new industry, whatever that might be going forward. It's going to be very interesting times in the future for sure, uh, Janet, as you say. And um, if we do think about that future, just before we do wrap things up on the uh, the programme today, um, do give me an idea of what you envision the next 12 months will hold for yourself and for the IAB and what you really hope to achieve as we move through COVID-19, hopefully emerge from the other side and then really begin to look toward the long-term future. I, I think for, um, for, for us ourselves, we want to still carry on promoting um, the bookkeeping and accountancy profession and also to um, 
promote our, our um, awarding side where uh, and look at the market. I think what we've really got to do is look at the market and what emerges after this and then to fit our qualifications around what is a business need. You know, what are new businesses looking for in somebody in their finances to, to help them on a daily basis? Because it's not just about bookkeeping going forward. It's also about the, the financial information that you're giving to these new businesses. So the, the roles of bookkeepers have slightly changed. And for me, I want to promote that change and to embrace um, the new technology to make um, us more nimble and to make our members help other businesses to be more nimble and flexible by giving them the data and information they need to carry on and the support. I think yeah, exactly right, and um, that's going to be needed in the uh, the future for sure. And let's hope that um, businesses do step up to the uh, the plate. And um, I've got to say, Janet, given how informative it's been uh, today, um, I think it would be great to actually catch up and have you back on the uh, the program in future, just to see how some of those hopes are borne out, and maybe we can reassess at that stage where exactly the industry is at and how the IAB itself is getting on as well. Absolutely, I would love to come back. It would be a real pleasure for myself and as well, Janet. It's been fantastic having you on the the programme with us uh, today. It's a real shame that we're just about out of time. Otherwise, we could discuss it all afternoon, I'm sure. But um, I've got to say, until we touch base again, um, do take care and do stay safe as well with all still going on because we're certainly not out of the woods with this yet. And there's plenty of time for things to uh, backtrack for the worse. And hopefully that's something that we're not going to see. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was Janet Jack speaking, the CEO of the International Association of Bookkeepers. Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord David Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State, and also the chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Despite being blind from birth, Lord Blunkett rose to prominence to become one of the most notable politicians of his generation. Holding um, his uh, seat as MP of Sheffield Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years and serving a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet. He was elevated to the House of Lords back in August 2015 when he was anointed Baron Blunkett of his old constituency, Brightside and Hillsborough. And I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with him. That's coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help, I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, 
which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for a British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, we'll be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good, 
as well as seeing an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different hi interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people 
not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London. But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of 
counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would people criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? 
were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months, we, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002 when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect and what happens with one will then have a major impact on another and then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected so i very much 
I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from '97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have 
some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Sakir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, 
of also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.